This is the Insight is Capital podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Insight is Capital podcast. This is Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com, and today we are very pleased to welcome David Rosenberg, Chief Economist with Gluskin Chef and Associates and author of the daily economic newsletter, Breakfast with Dave. David will be giving the opening keynote address at the Inside ETF conference June 21st and 22nd in Montreal. The subject of this keynote will be where to invest for tomorrow today. David, thank you very much for joining us today. In your most recent notes, you've become critical of the growth outlook for Canada and the U.S. First, let's talk about Canada. What are the factors you see are interfering with the Canadian story? Right. Well, the Canadian story, I think, is uh, probably a more obvious one than the U.S., um, but I think in Canada, uh, it's a case of um, excessive regulation, uh, the fact that um, we're having trouble, obviously, attracting uh, foreign direct investment into the country because of what's happening uh, on the uh, domestic uh, pipeline side, which is um, artificially uh, depressed uh, our oil price. Uh, and um, that's been a critical constraint, obviously, for um, uh, for the energy patch and all the ancillary industries attached to it. I think at the same time, uh, you know, we have diverging uh, tax policies between Canada and the rest of the world, uh, and especially the United States. So for the first time in over two decades, uh, our net effective tax rate in the corporate sector is above where it is in the United States. And when you take a look at the whole um, gamut of tax reforms that have taken place in the U.S. and the lack of a response by the federal government, um, you know, everything from the lack of a response here to the tax rate decline in the United States and also the reality that uh, you have full-year depreciation allowance write-offs in the United States, which we don't have here at home, uh, the reality is that if you're a North American business, uh, you're completely incentivized today to book all your revenues in the United States, which means that investment uh, and job creation is going to be deflected uh, from Canada into the United States. So that's, I think, one of the critical factors, diverging uh, fiscal policies uh, when you tack on hydro costs in Ontario, uh, higher minimum wages, the tax situation, we are become much more uncompetitive relative to our uh, chief trading partner and competitor. Uh, and you layer that on top of an incoherent energy policy uh, and um, housing markets that are correcting hard in uh, 35% of the country called Toronto and Vancouver and excessively indebted Canadian households, um, you really, if you're bullish on the Canadian outlook, you're sort of uh, boxed yourself into a corner to figure out, you know, what is going to happen in the next several quarters or years that are going to cause an acceleration in economic growth. Uh, I think it's going to be um, hitched to a weaker Canadian dollar, artificially stimulating exports into the U.S., and that's basically going to be, you know, so long as you don't get hit with a wave of uh, protectionist policies and uh, eradication of NAFTA, that's really all we can point our fingers at is the cheap Canadian dollar uh, buying our market share way uh, into the U.S. market. That's the bullish story for Canada for the next while. You said that the Bank of Canada is caught in a box. Well, I mean, caught in the box in the sense that, um, you know, the Fed is uh, under uh, the new uh, chairman, Jay Powell, is clearly raising rates, albeit gradually. Uh, and uh, normally, uh, you'd expect the Bank of Canada, although we do have our own independent monetary policy, uh, 90% of the time in the past, we follow what the U.S. does. That's just a, a fact. 
Um, but we're going to find going forward that the Fed will continue to nudge the funds rate up, and the Bank of Canada is going to be forced to the sidelines because of these range of domestic constraints and economic growth. Uh, the banks already said that um, they're going to be willing to tolerate uh, any extended period of inflation above target. Uh, their bet, uh, their view is that any inflation in Canada will be transitory. They're going to look right through it. Uh, the Fed um, has, uh, you know, more to do primarily as well when you consider that the Fed's got this bloated $4 trillion balance sheet, which is shrinking uh, also gradually. When you look at the shadow Fed funds rate in the United States, you're taking a look at the, or the policy rate in the U.S. is actually still negative when you account for the pregnant uh, Fed balance sheet. Um, so the Fed's got more room to go to take out the accommodation. Um, and the Bank Canada is going to stand pat. Uh, and these interest rate spreads, which are negative 50, 60 basis points right now across the Canadian yield curve compared to the U.S., those negative interest rate spreads over time become more negative, and irrespective of what commodity prices do, that is going to be one of the albatrosses around the neck of the Canadian dollar. It's been said that the policy response in the Bank of Canada has been very reactive rather than proactive. Well, you know, only in one specific sense, which is that uh, the bank got, it seems to me, pushed into that rate hike in January, which I think ever since then, based on all the dovish rhetoric, seems to be a classic case of, of buyer's remorse, or maybe in this case, seller's remorse. Uh, you know, we had an unexpected boom in jobs in November, December, which frankly, when I was looking at the data and analyzing it, did not pass the sniff test. Um, but there was no... At that point, uh, you know, December into January, there was no communication from the bank end to the market. Uh, the market classically shot first, asked questions later, rapidly priced in from almost nothing, uh, rapidly priced in a, a bank end tightening, and the bank felt compelled to uh, follow the market instead of leading the market. Um, I think since then, the bank has been leading the market towards the view that they are on hold. Uh, you know, the market continues to believe the next move will be a hike, but whenever it is, uh, I think it's way down the road if it happens at all. Um, so I think, look, there's always a symbiotic relationship between the markets and the central bank and the central bank and the markets. Uh, my sense right now is that um, is that the bank has the markets uh, where they like it, which is uh, thinking that the next move could be a hike, but not really knowing when that could possibly be. Are you saying that they're leaving the, the door open on that? There isn't a, a schedule in mind or they're going to watch and see? I think it's, uh, yeah, look, I, I think it's not just data dependent, it's also forecast dependent. The, the bank, uh, in its nuanced way, uh, has managed to tell the markets that it's going to be very patient because, uh, for example, the most recent revelation was this uh, undiscovered amount of economic slack in the labor market, which the bank said they didn't identify before. This, therefore, is telling the Bank of Canada that we're not going to get uh, sort of wage inflation we may have in the past with the unemployment rate as low as it is. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, telling the markets uh, that, you know, they're not going to overreact to any length of time where uh, inflation is at or above target. So they're finding different ways to signal to the market that they're going to be unduly patient. Now, they're not giving any signal that they're going to cut interest rates, and they would take really just a uh, either a, a, a monumental freeze-up in the capital markets or there would have to be something global or a complete shift in their forecast towards a recession for them to cut interest rates, especially at a time when the Fed is nudging the funds rate higher. Um, but my sense is that for the time being, uh, you know, the the bank will be, as usually, very situational. Um, but we have just this range of um, of clouds or constraints. Uh, you know, we mentioned the, the energy side. We didn't share nearly as much uh, in this big run-up we had up until recently in Brantford WTI. 
you know, we have the NAFTA overhang, and on top of the NAFTA overhang, the general increased in the protectionist sentiment uh, in the U.S. Uh, look, we have now some political uncertainty related to uh, Ontario, uh, and uh, we have the tax and fiscal divergence um, that's playing a role as well. Um, you know, the reality is that when you're taking a look at the Canadian national balance sheet, look at all levels of government, all households, all businesses, our total debt-to-GDP ratio is at 290% of GDP. It's never been that high. We've never been as a nation this indebted relative to the size of the economy. In fact, we're at a point now where, you know, we're, we're making Italy start to blush at our current level of indebtedness. And look what's happening over there right now. Uh, and that's a pervasive constraint on how far can the Bank of Canada raise interest rates, especially when their own data show that almost half of residential mortgages in Canada are going to be refinanced in the coming year, which is an incredible statistic. When you consider how conservative Canadians used to be, everybody used to take out a five-year mortgage, but because interest rates were left so low for so long and everybody believed the Bank of Canada would never raise interest rates, and actually what we're seeing is that the bank doesn't have to raise interest rates. The U.S. bond yields are going up. We're importing that interest rate pressure into our mortgage market. So even though the bank can is not doing anything, because 90% of our bond markets, according to the U.S., we're seeing mortgage rates back up. And half of the outstanding mortgages are being refinanced in the coming year at higher interest rates, which in turn is going to end up crimping consumer spending, which is 60% of GDP. So in that environment, what's the bank can really supposed to do? Uh, really, their hands are tied. Uh, you know, when I say that, that they're caught in a box. It's no different than saying that they are severely constrained in terms of uh, raising interest rates any time the forecasting horizon, as far as I'm concerned. So, so doing so would be an error? I think it's pretty clear. Look, the Bank of Canada raised interest rates in January. For what reason? I mean, they didn't follow through with anything else ever since except just consistently dovish uh, policy rhetoric. Uh, so, um, you know, time will tell whether January was a mistake. Uh, I think the Bank of Canada like most other economists, had a slightly different GDP forecast uh, for the first quarter than what we're going to end up getting, which is, you know, barely 1.5%, which for uh, all intents and purposes is what you call a stall-speed economy. Um, so uh, I think that the Bank of Canada has some regret. They won't say it openly. Why would they? I wouldn't, uh, but I think there's probably some regret for having raised rates in January based on spurious employment data in November, December uh, that showed no extension into the opening months of this year. And so, uh, you know, I think only a fool makes the same mistake twice, and I think the Bank of Canada is not going to make that same mistake. Let's talk about the U.S., uh, David. You foresee that Trumponomics will cause the next recession. What, what could possibly go wrong there? Well, firstly, to be stimulating fiscal policy, the extent that the U.S. is doing at this stage of the cycle uh, is uh, the height of irresponsibility, um, very myopic view towards how you run an economy. Uh, and so here we are uh, heading into the 10th year of the expansion, an unemployment rate of sub-4%. Um, it's a time period where you want to basically, um, uh, you know, uh, almost pull uh, a Joseph out of the Old Testament, you know, and save for the rainy day. This is not a time to be running structurally high fiscal deficits at the peak of the business cycle. Um, so what's happening is that uh, we're getting a bit of a sugar high, uh, you know, in uh, some of the economic numbers, not all of them, uh, because of the fiscal boost. Um, but uh, it's going to come out of uh, the economic numbers we get next year when we're going to be left with a huge fiscal hangover. Now, on top of that, um, you got to consider that last year, for example, the U.S. was running close to, say, a $600 billion fiscal deficit. 
that's not going up to a trillion. In the next few years, probably on its way to two trillion, because it wasn't just tax reform that we had in the United States. Uh, you know, tax reform the way that Canada did it in the past, Australia, the United Kingdom, you cut the rate, you broaden the base. Well, there was no broadening of the base. There were just more bells and whistles. Then they cut taxes on the personal side so that they can make the corporate tax cuts more palatable to the electorate. And then, of course, uh, gargantuan spending on defense and social programs on top of that at the peak of the cycle. So we're going from $600 billion deficits to a trillion to then $2 trillion. Uh, And we have to remember that, you know, because the net national savings rate in the United States uh, is barely more than 1%. The, the U.S. loves to spend. <laughs> they don't like to save very much. The question is, who's going to step up the Treasury auctions to buy all these bonds that will be issued in record sizes? Uh, you know, go back last year, half of the fiscal deficit was financed by the good graces of the foreign investor. The same foreign investor who resides in the country now uh, where Donald Trump and his protectionist team are threatening you with higher tariffs. It'll be very interesting to see how it all plays out, how the United States can attack its training partners in this blame game, uh, and at the same time expect that they're going to show up at the auctions to fund your deficits, which are going to record highs, tells me that no matter what the Fed does, the laws of supply and demand are going to dictate that interest rates are going to be backing up. And higher interest rates uh, have been behind every single recession in the United States in the post-World War II era. Uh, we've had 10 recessions in the U.S. All of them were led by higher interest rates. And so this is the um, uh, the fallout from running irresponsible fiscal deficits. As we don't know about what these do in Canada in our experience in the 1980s and early 1990s. So what seems like a very benevolent and pro-growth fiscal stance is actually a critical policy error to be carrying out pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus at the peak of the business cycle is going to sow the seeds for uh, inflation, cost push inflation, at a time of higher tariffs, which is the other part of Trumponomics, which is trade protectionism, um, with the U.S. running out of workers, it all just is right me. To me, it's pretty obvious. Everybody thinks that this business cycle is going to last indefinitely, and if there's a recession, it's not until 2020 or 2021. I think it's going to be a lot sooner than that. I don't see how the Fed just sits idly by and ratifies a fiscal stimulus package of this size at a time of full employment, keeping in mind that the Fed funds rate right now is still negative in real terms at a time of full employment, which has never happened before. So, look, I'm not a rampant inflationist. I don't think we're going into the 1970s and going to listen to disco music and put on bell bottoms again, but I do think that we have sown the seeds for much higher interest rates over the course of the next year, and that is what is going to undo this expansion because higher interest rates at a time of record high leverage across the business sector in particular and swaths of the household sector, I'm talking specifically about auto loans and talking about um, uh, about uh, credit cards, uh, those are going to be some of the um, some of the points of interest in terms of what rolls this thing over. On top of the fact that, you know, we went into the cycle with a third of outstanding corporate debt in the United States and the investment grade sector rated triple B today, that's almost half. We've never had a junkier corporate bond market. And um, we have a, a mountain in the next couple of years of uh, corporate debt refinancings across leverage loans, uh, investment grade and high yield that, can, that are going to be refinanced at higher interest rates. And those debt service payments are going to come at the expense of spending in the real economy. 
so it's not difficult to look at this situation, understand where we are in the cycle, which is the ninth inning, and uh, connecting the dots that um, you know that uh, that with a lag, these rising rates are going to pinch uh, the economy. It's not obvious today any more than it was a year before the last recession. I don't remember anybody in January of 2006 talking about, um, or in January, uh, you know, 2007 talking about a recession. January 2008. I don't remember anybody talking in uh, in 2000 about a recession. 2001. You see, it's never obvious to anybody until it's staring you in the face. Uh, but I think that an economic downturn in the United States is, uh, is probably no more than a year away right now. As for the global economy, you say the synchronized growth story is fading. David, what is happening there? Well, you know, we we were past tense in a synchronized growth story last year, uh, much like we were in a synchronized growth story back in 2007. But, you know, it's like the um, you know it's like the the optimist and the pessimist go for a cup of coffee. And the optimist says, things can't possibly get any better. And the pessimist says to him, uh, well, I think you're probably right on that one. So that's exactly right. <laughs> things can't possibly get any better. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's, it's one thing to have, um, a dramatically easy global monetary policy, uh, and then that begins to fade. So much of the cycle was premised on the generosity of global central banks. Uh, so uh, the Fed is raising rates. They're shrinking the balance sheet. Uh, the ECB is no longer cutting interest rates. I mean, they're already negative in Europe, but they are they are starting to taper their balance sheet. Um, Japan is stuck with these, um, you know, ongoing uh, demographic challenges. China is tightening credit uh, to rein in their debt binge. And Europe, of course, got hit with a lag from um, the fact that the euro appreciated by 10% in the past year, and that's, of course, come home this year with a lag to negatively affect uh, their manufacturing sector and exports. And you're seeing that, really, in what was once the engine Germany has now become a bit of the caboose uh, tack on some of the recent uh, political um, uh, politically tenuous situation in both Italy and Spain coming home to roost. You have the UK where uh, the Brexit uh, uncertainties uh, are pervasive overhang over their economy. Um, so, yeah, you've seen it in the data this year. Uh, you know, the U.S. is not accelerating. Um, Japan actually contracted in the first quarter. Looking at the uh, at the aggregate data in Europe, it looks as though they're basically running barely above a 1% annual rate. Uh, China is not imploding, but China certainly is slowing down. So the synchronized growth story, uh, I'm not going to say it's gone to a full-scale reversal, but it's certainly um, uh, gone into a uh, much different and slower gear than it was this time last year. So David, given this downbeat growth scenario, where do we go from here? Well, I think that where you go from here, if you're an investor, is the most important thing is to have an understanding of um, of, uh, uh, of where we are in the business cycle. Uh, you know, so the economists really should be uh, topographers right now, lay out a map, uh, show people where exactly are we in the cycle. I think that we are late cycle, uh, and I'm talking in baseball parlance. I think that we are probably uh, the bottom of the eighth inning heading into the ninth inning. In fact, I've done a whole bunch of analysis showing that we are we are 90% of the way through this cycle. So you want to invest uh, with a late cycle mentality in mind, uh, and that means that you want to be hedged against uh, rising interest rates, especially in the United States. And the spillover that we'll have into Canada. 
Uh, you want to be hedged against late cycle uh, inflationary pressures, which will be exacerbated by uh, this U.S. trade protectionist policy. So you want to hedge against inflation, hedge against rising rates. Uh, because there's so much leverage in the system, you want to be more focused than ever on the balance sheet. Equity investors, of course, are attentive when it comes to the income statement. Uh, but it's going to be even more important to focus on the quality of the balance sheet, especially when you consider what debt service uh, payments are going to look like uh, over the course of the next several quarters and years. So balance sheet quality, and it means that you step up the quality of your bond portfolio, reduce the duration, uh, but also have a very clear understanding of what the refinancing risks are for any particular company that you own, irrespective of whether it has earnings visibility or not, what right. the, the debt refinancing schedule look like. So it's really about, um, you know, I think you want to have more cash on hand than you normally do to use for optionality purposes. Uh, and um, and I think that you want to have a bit of a more defensive, non-cyclical bias in the portfolio. And I think that you'll do just fine if you follow those uh, protocols. And do you have any thoughts on the equity markets? Yeah, I'd say that, uh, you, know, you know, look, Canada is always an interesting uh, commentary because it's not really a market. It's more like a barbell between resources and financials with special situations in between. Um, you know, financials actually are a uh, pretty good hedge from rising rates. Uh, and um, and I think that actually energy uh, tends to be a very good late cycle performer. It's going to ask me, who do I prefer more? And I say this understanding the political risk in Canada. Don't forget that so many of these Canadian companies are multinationals that do so much of their business outside of Canada. So when you're buying um, Canadian companies, you're not really buying Canadian GDP. Actually, you know, a lot of the Canadian companies in the TSX are more correlated to the Chinese GDP or U.S. GDP than the Canadian GDP. Uh, we don't dictate really where the price of global energy prices are going, um, but Energy stocks, um, commodity stocks, they tend to be good classic late cycle performance and good hedges against inflation. And uh, the financials, and not just the banks, but also, also the life codes tend to be natural uh, hedges against rising interest rates. In the United States, again, it's uh, going to be a case of being uh, very selective. It's not so much sector specific uh, in the U.S. as much as being very cognizant of the degree of economic sensitivity you have in your equity portfolio. Uh, and uh, there are different ways as well. You can hedge against inflation and uh, rising rates, uh, very similar uh, that you would be doing in uh, in the Canadian space. I think in Canada, the one thing that's obvious to me is that Canadian dollar's direction is going to be weaker, uh, and um, that cuts both ways, creates winners and losers. Uh, but the winners in the stock market in Canada will be those companies that have uh, large-scale U.S. dollar denominated revenues that will be accretive to their earnings. Uh, so there'll be some parts of the industrials that will do very well in that environment. Uh, and um, you know, if you can ever remove uh, the NAFTA cloud, uh, so much the better. Uh, so notwithstanding the fact that I have a more downbeat economic outlook in Canada, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the politics, well, the politics in the United States are going to look dicey too when you consider what could possibly happen with the midterm elections. So it's not as if Canada is alone in this realm of political uncertainty. Uh, we're going to have the Ontario election, then followed by the Quebec election. Then we'll be, uh, before you know it, in the middle of a federal campaign here as well. Uh, but the point I'm making in the Canadian context as a, as a plug for Canada 
uh, is a lot of bad news is already priced in. I mean, when your interest rates are this far below the United States, when the Canadian dollar is trading this far below its equilibrium value based on what commodity prices would tell you it should be, uh, you know, when you have the Canadian stock market trading at uh, two multiple discount to the U.S. stock market on a PE basis, there's a lot of bad news priced in the Canada at the same time. The one thing I'll say about Canada, if you're looking for a traditional late cycle outperformer, uh, and you're looking for something that has value in a part of the cycle where value does outperform growth, keeping in mind the S&P 500 is a growth, uh, is a growth universe. Canada's really value. Uh, I'm probably at the margin more bullish on the Canadian stock market right now relative to the U.S. despite everything else I've talked about. David, thank you so much for your time and we'll see you at the Inside ETF conference. Excellent. I'm very excited about it.